Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history like a microcosm. In the last mega episode, we took a look back at Roman Cologne, but also an outlook on how elements of Roman Cologne persist and how they shape the city to this day. What awaits you this episode? Well, we will once again enter Cologne on foot as a traveler, so be there for a walk together through early Frankish Cologne. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne? Even though its era has long since passed, Cologne Bonn Airport was always considered an emergency landing strip for space shuttles of the US space agency NASA, which had drifted slightly of course. To do so, the runway had to be at least 2.3 kilometers long, like 1.5 US miles. While conventional airplanes could land on water in case of an emergency, the space shuttle which was far too heavy would have broken apart if it landed on water. But even without an emergency, the US space shuttle Enterprise, the name was actually inspired by Star Trek, came to visit Cologne. In 1983, on a rainy May 20th, it landed in Cologne, mounted on the back of a Boeing 747. More than 300,000 spectators didn't miss the spectacle, causing the biggest traffic jam the city had experienced up to that point, and marveling at what was then the world's largest aeronautical harness. Previously, they had made two rounds around the cathedral, so that really everyone in the city could marvel at the space shuttle and the Boeing 747 on this day. The team stayed in Cologne of a Pentecost, and at that time 9-11 was still far away in people's minds. So it was perfectly natural that the crowds could also go to the tarmac of the airport to have a really close look at the team of the Boeing and the space shuttle. So now of that, let's get to the real topic of this episode. I still hope to find a royalty-free picture of the event or maybe even a video recording. Of course, I will put it on my homepage. Link to it, as always, in the show notes. Let's hit the intro. While we were just flying high in the air in the 1980s, we now land back in the late 5th century. Welcome to Frankish Cologne. Shall we go for a walk? Since we once entered the city in our imaginary mind's eye in the heyday of Rome Cologne around the year 200, a lot has changed. Let's start outside the city walls. Still visible is the mighty 8 meter high wall of the Romans. The Franks, the new masters of Cologne, strive to keep the city defensible. But why is this necessary? The Roman Empire is now no more, here at the end of the 5th century. However, the so-called migration period is not yet completely finished, which began in the 370s. What does this mean in concrete terms? Numerous barbarian empires have been founded on the former territory of the Western Roman Empire. Between these and also within these still unconsolidated empires, people, tribes, families, clans and dynasties fought for influence and power. Frankish Empire spread along the Rhine and in northeastern Gaul, with a small part in northern Gaul itself still dominated by a Roman potentate entrenched in the city of today's Soissons. 
I can't speak French, I told you several times before. The Ostrogoths are lurking in the northern Balkans, soon to end the rule of the former Western Roman officer Odoaca in the Italian peninsula. Their distant relatives, the Visigoths, rule parts of Gaul and the Iberian peninsula. To the east of Cologne, the Thuringians are also on the advance. Meanwhile, Britain sinks into the turmoil of a dark age from which we don't really know much until today, except that in the end it is the emigrated Anglo-Saxons from Germania who will have the say there in the early Middle Ages. And then there is the Byzantine Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean, which had once emerged as the eastern part of the division of the Roman Empire and now also looks to the west, asking itself the question, could we not just create a unified Roman Empire again by starting new conquests to the west? Western Europe of the post-Roman era is thus politically in motion and not at all firmly defined in terms of power politics. So it is absolutely understandable that the Franks continue to secure the city of Cologne militarily. More and more these days, news reaches the Rhine that the Germanic Alemanni want to extend their sphere of influence from the southern Rhine to the north. This means, of course, that at some point they might also come to Cologne. What would not please the Frankish as well as Gallo-Romanic Cologne inhabitants? Because it would mean war and misery for the region. So much for the current world situation in which our now Frankish city of Cologne finds itself at the end of the 5th century. But let's take a literal look at the city now. This time we are approaching the city from the south on the old Roman road coming from Southern Bonn. As we walk towards the city wall we catch sight of some burial grounds to the left and right of the main road, just as in Roman times. However, the grave designs have changed somewhat. Gone are the monumental tombs of solid stone or even marble that the rich and wealthy of the city had made. Religious symbols have also changed. The native Gallo-Roman urban population of Cologne is Christian in not insignificant numbers, whereby the number of pagan inhabitants is not likely to be small. In Western Europe, Christianization was not yet as advanced as in the Eastern Mediterranean, for example. In addition, the Franks who immigrated over the past decades increased the number of non-Christians, because they continued to be attached to their Germanic gods at this time. Maybe you remember the episode about Saint Severin. Here in the south, just outside the city, is also his tomb among these burial grounds. A building that must have stood there was a so-called Sela Memoriae, as it is called in Latin, which stood in the middle of this southern burial ground. This building served as a Christian memorial, where today stands a beautiful large Romanesque basilica, which together with its patron Saint Severin gave its name to an entire district of Cologne later on, stood at that time a modest rectangular room provided on one side with a semicircular extension to the west, a so-called apse. I don't like to throw around technical terms, but a city like Cologne, which will be so dominated by church buildings, one can simply not avoid using such terms. From a bird's eye view, an apse usually connects to a wall as a semicircular extension and extends it outward. The roof of this extension is usually covered with a half dome. Many Romanesque churches have an apse or even several. It is one of the defining architectural features of the early Middle Ages. Even the Romans had liked to build apses just as the Basilica of Constantine the Great in Trier has a massive late antique apse at its north 
and to this day. Long story short, I'll just post some example images in the companion post of this episode, link to them in the show notes. As we approach this memorial, we can witness a funeral procession. It is a sad occasion. Well, funerals are always are, actually. Here, however, a noble Frankish boy had died who did not live past the age of six. The grave was right next to another child's grave, in which a four-year-old relative of the now-deceased six-year-old boy had already been buried not so long ago. Unlike the Romans, however, this is a body burial and not a cremation. The Frankish mourners placed numerous grave goods in the boy's tufa sarcophagus. Such stone sarcophagi were elaborate and expensive to produce. They were brought by ship up the Rhine to Cologne, an indication that this must have been a high-ranking Frankish boy. The grave goods are almost without exception the same as those that the boy in the neighboring grave had already received. High infant mortality was a constant companion of people until the discovery and development of modern medicine, which did not mean that people saw it as business as usual. Burying a child, then as now, was an extremely sad affair. Thus, an Iron Francisca is also attached to the now-dead six-year-old boy, is a common throwing axe of the Franks at that time. However, it is not clear whether the axe received the name due to the widespread use of the Franks. As in later times, children were simply small adults in the eyes of contemporary witnesses. So it is not surprising that the Frankish boy was buried like a warrior and prince, which he once should have been as a full-grown man. His exalted noble status is also indicated by a silver ring on his right hand and a metal ring on his left wrist, which was decorated with gold. And what would a young warrior be without a sword? This was attached to the belt of his robe. In addition, he wore leather sandals along with tunic and cloak, the typical outfit of that time. At this time, in the middle and the end of the 5th century, the Franks were still pagan believers who adhered to the Germanic gods like countless generations of their ancestors before them. This is also tested by the other grave goods. Similar to the Egyptians, the deceased should have enough to eat on the way to the realm of the dead. It would be silly if one were to starve, being already dead, halfway there. Thus, in the case of the already younger four-year-old dead boy, there were several eggs, a fully prepared roasted poultry dish in honey and herbs, and another boiled chicken in clay bowls and pots in his grave. Having meat in such amount, of course, also speaks to the elevated status of the deceased. The older of the two had a jug of birch sap, a glass of wine, and a vessel of spicy beef broth. That children were given alcohol both in life and in death was widespread, and was to remain so for a long time. After all, children were already small adults. Then there was no question that they were allowed to drink. What is special? The Romans and also most of the Romanized inhabitants of Cologne were fans of cremation burial. With the advent of Christianity and the barbarian influences of the Franks, body burial returned in greater numbers. Franks buried their dead in this way anyway, as we just learned. Early Christians, in turn, did likewise, often with the dead facing Jerusalem. But we will come to the Christianization of Cologne in early medieval times separately. The funeral procession I just described was just an anecdote I made up. The exact cause of events is of course not known to me, not 
even whether both had perhaps even died at the same time. What is true, however, is that the two dead boys really did exist, and also their rich grave goods. Both boys were found in 1938 under the church of today's St. Severin during archaeological investigations. Their two graves are so close to each other that historical research assumes that they are related. What makes these tombs so special is that they date from the middle of the 5th century, that is shortly after the Franks took power in the region. It is remarkable how naturally the new power elite of the city had already settled in the midst of the Roman culture. Whether the two boys belong to the pagan or Christian faith, I myself unfortunately cannot determine nor have I found an answer to that, but it is something extraordinary that here too probably pagan Frankish boys were buried in the middle of a Christian burial ground near a Christian memorial room. This shows that numerous different religions still coexisted and lived side by side in the city. However, Christianization would experience a tremendous push in the future. This led to the fact that from then on dead bodies were increasingly buried directly next to the church and cemeteries in the city, with negative consequences for hygiene and the quality of groundwater. Well, now, he's already talked about dead people and tombstones again for ages. Well, but I repeat it only too gladly. Such archaeological finds say a lot about the life of the people of that time and cultural customs. After all, that is what interests us in the whole thing here. Leaving behind the burial ground and the small memorial, we enter the city through the southern gate, not far away from the Ubia monument. Even now, at the end of the 5th century, a watchtower is enthroned on its foundation. As we enter the city, the large square of today's Heumarkt, this is German for Haymarket, opens up before us. At that time, this square is still rather a young settlement place within the city. In Caesar's time, 500 years ago, a branch of the Rhine still flowed here, separating the offshore Rhine island and the walled city. However, due to increasing silting up, this tributary had dried up. Already in Constantine's time, around the year 310, the area could have been integrated into the city so that the city could expand eastwards towards the main stream. The then Heumarkt, which of course was not yet called that, was much larger than it is today. The adjacent Altermarkt, the Old Market, today in the north, was originally also a part of it. In the south, the square has lost almost half of its size compared to today. Today, the crossing bridge to Deutz, streetcar tracks and especially the bridge access roads built entirely in the zeitgeist of the automotive city have caused its original character, which was praised by travelers from near and far until well into the 19th century, to disappear. Until then, the Heumarkt had ranked on the same scale of popularity as St. Mark's Square in Venice. But well, I digress. Actually, the Heumark needs its own special episode without the chains of chronology that this podcast imposes. Let's see if I can do something about it sometime. The area of the Heumarkt in Frankish times naturally looked quite different from that in later times. After all, it had only just ended its function as the city's garbage dump, a circumstance that had contributed to the silting up of this branch of the Rhine. A few years ago, when the construction of a subway directly through the heart of the old city began, 
archaeologists were amazed to find hundreds of thousands of animal bones and countless food scraps preserved for over 2000 years in the area, in addition to the usual suspects such as pottery, amphorae and weathered wood. It is to this ancient garbage in particular that we owe today's knowledge of what was imported and consumed in the city at the time. And that, as we know, was almost everything that could be imported in the Roman Empire and beyond. Clear evidence of Cologne's prosperity and antiquity. After this garbage dump was full, the late antique inhabitants had created additionally with building rubble, sand gravel and earth a largely firm underground. Now in Frankish time, there is a lot of activity here. Since, as I said, it is still a young district, Franks in particular are present here. And this is also reflected in the architecture, which can be found here in the late 5th century. Nevertheless, the traces of the ancient masters of the city are still clearly visible here at the end of the 5th century. A Roman warehouse about 100 meters long, but no more than 6 meters wide, still stands on the site although it is now largely in ruins due to lack of maintenance. As a ruin, it will continue to dominate the square for several centuries. People from the district like to help themselves to the building in order to extract building materials for new structures. At this time, especially many of the new Frankish citizens. So it is not surprising that this Germanic settlement is fully built also in the architectural style of the Franks. Due to the rather unsafe building grounds on the area of today's Heumarkt, the Franks built so-called post houses. This type of single-story houses was of course in no way similar to those of the Romans. Posts were driven into the ground at the sides and in the middle, which then support the gable roof. Mortar or cement, as used by the Romans, was foreign to the Franks. They preferred to use clay. Thus, here in, as in many parts of the former Roman Empire, the recipe for the strong and enduring Roman concrete was lost. The strong colouring of the soil in the settlement areas at Heumarkt from this time show that the Franks simply brought their most extensive way of life of farming self-sufficiency into the city. This means that farm animals such as pigs, sheep, chickens and goats were also kept directly at the place of residence. This was a development that had already begun before the end of Roman rule. With the extensive devastation of the surrounding countryside of Cologne in the late decades of Roman rule, people had begun to practice agriculture and animal husbandry behind the protected walls of the city. In Frankish times this was probably especially the western part of the walled Roman city, while urban life shifted more to the east towards the Rhine, the harbour and the newly reclaimed urban areas such as the Heumarkt. This was to remain the case until modern times. Until the beginning of the 20th century, some districts in the middle of today's city center were still dominated by agriculture. Trade was also carried out in the respective post houses on the area of today's Heumarkt. The interesting thing is, the goods archaeologically found there in the houses of that time had been produced entirely in Roman design. Without the knowledge of the Germanic post houses, one could have assumed that purely Romanized inhabitants of Cologne lived here in the late 5th century. Probably a few people lived on the Heumarkt itself. There were still sufficient houses from Roman times in the vicinity of the square, which were now also inhabited by the Franks. Only in the course of time, these were replaced by newer, half-timbered houses. This did not necessarily mean a technological regression. 
it should not be forgotten that most of the Roman dwellings were also single-story as so-called strip houses and were built with half-timbered elements. While we are standing here on the area of the Heumarkt, the east wind from the Rhine is blowing around our noses. Looking to the east, we look at the Roman city wall on the Rhine side, which could provide the people with the fastest possible protection in the city in case of possible attacks by ship. We therefore walk once briefly through the harbour gate and enter the harbour. We can clearly see the neighbouring Deutz from here. Oh, that's right! What's actually going on with Deutz, this formal fort that the Roman Emperor Constantine had built around the year 310 opposite Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine? Well, we can see it clearly, as I said. The fact that we can also see it here at the end of the 5th century in this imaginary tour is considered archaeologically certain. Here, in Deutz, the excavations that have been carried out on the site since the 19th century have yielded Frankish settlements remains from this period. In Deutz, as with the city of Cologne itself, the transition from Roman to Frankish rule may have been seamless and without violence. The excavations did not reveal any foreign or violent influences at the fort that could support such a thesis. As in Cologne, the Franks lived in the midst of their Romanized neighbors and used the Roman infrastructure, if still existed. In addition to their own, as at Heumarkt, similar everyday objects were found here. The condition of the bridge that connected Cologne and the Fort Deutz is, as I said, not entirely clear to this day. It was probably no longer completely intact, and if so, then maybe only in an improvised manner, meaning that individual planks between the pillars still enabled fit and able-bodied pedestrians to cross the stream. Whether, for example, carts could still cross the bridge, that is not possible to find out. And there you can see, of course, not everything in Cologne is as great as it was in Roman times. The Roman supply and sewage system have long since ceased to function due to the lack of maintenance, a lack of skilled personnel, the lack of knowledge and also a lack of time and money. Then there was the fact that the church was increasingly waging a bitter campaign against the ancient bathing culture, scolding it as not demure. Remember, after all, the men and women bathing in the ancient baths went around naked. That could only lead to immorality. It was to take a while until people in the Middle Ages rediscovered the fun of public baths. However, the water for this was then laboriously obtained by the buckets from local wells from the depths and no longer with a practical 90 km long and above all clean waterline. Water was obtained from wells within the city and from the Duffesbach, a creek which conveniently flowed through Cologne. The fact that the Duffesbach ran through Cologne at all was thanks to the Romans who 500 years earlier had already artificially piped the creek into the city for what was then known as the Oppidum Ubiorum. It was to take until the year 1872 before Cologne again had a central underground water supply system. Somehow, however, garbage and sewage had to be disposed of even in Frankish times. In our time here in the late 5th century, people were content with digging simple pits next to the houses into which they disposed all of their waste. Of course, this was not ideal. It must have stunk beastly everywhere, especially on hot and dry days. 
You can imagine what that meant for the quality of life and hygiene. Let's leave the harbor, Deutz and the Heumarkt behind us. We return to the city and get back on the main road. This we follow further to the north. It is of course today's Hohestrasse or in Roman times the Cardo Maximus. Even at this time, this main road continues to be a wide and paved street. Not long ago it had been repaired by the then Roman administration. Over the centuries, however, it would become narrower due to denser construction and the subsequent road surface would decrease in quality. Those who have listened attentively to all episodes of this podcast know that the Hohestrasse also leads us to the former seat of Roman power in the Rhineland, the Praetorium. The Praetorium, along with the city walls, is one of the clearest remains of what is still visibly left of the former Roman political power. The 100 meters long building and former seat of the Roman governors now serves for representation and government purposes of the Frankish leadership of the city. Let's enter the building, which still remains much of its charm as the largest building in the Rhineland. In the central part of the Praetorium we see King Sigebert. He is the king of the Franks of Cologne. Sigebert is just going about his daily businesses of governing. Until about the year 455, Sigebert's Frankish ancestors had secured the border on the Rhine for Rome against other Germanic invaders. But then the Roman payments for the Franks stopped, because the Western Roman Empire was finally in the process of dissolution. How would you react if your boss is neither present nor paying your salary? Right, you take over the whole store yourself. Sigibert was probably the first Frankish ruler in Cologne who had not originally been in Roman services, because he was born or raised after the Roman era. His father, however, from whom he had inherited the dominion of Cologne, had himself certainly been one of the Frankish army commanders in Roman service who had declared independence from Rome around the year 450. Who is Sigibert and what does his title King of Cologne actually mean? I guess we will have to postpone that until the next episode. Maybe it's better that way. The episode is already long enough. If that weren't enough, a messenger arrives with a message to Sigibert. A message from Clodwig, or Clovis how he's called in English, but I urge you please let me call him in German and not in English. So, Clodwig, another king of a Frankish kingdom in northern Gaul, tells Sigibert that he wants to help him, Sigibert, fight the expanding Alemanni on the southern Rhine that are threatening Frankish rule. But wait, there are multiple Frankish kings? Yes, at this point in the late 5th century, Frankish rule is still divided into small sub-kingdoms. But we would better take a closer look at the political composition of the Franks in detail in the next episode. So, we leave the Praetorium and return to the Hohestrasse and continue north. After only a few hundred meters, we are already at the northern gate of the Roman city wall. Just here began then our first walk into Roman Cologne many episodes before. And if you listen closely back then, this is exactly where Cologne's mighty Gothic cathedral stands today, our Cologne Cathedral. But it would take more than a few centuries until construction of it began. So what was located here around the year 500? At that time, almost in the shadow of the northern city wall, there was already a Christian bishop's church here. 
This bishop's church was rectangularly built with an apse facing east, so in the direction of Jerusalem. I hope you remembered the word apse. I told you that we would come across it more often. If not, you'll have to rewind this episode. Directly to the east in front of the apse of the bishop's church is a separate almost small square building, each with small side aisles to the north and south. This building served as a so-called baptistry, a baptismal chapel. Unlike today in almost all Christian denominations, it was not possible to enter a consecrated church as an unbaptized person, according to the late antique or early medieval conception of Christian faith. Thus, baptisms logically could not take place directly in the actual church building. Religious conversions and adult baptisms were still very common. Infant baptisms were to become the vast majority only later. Furthermore, the person still had to be completely immersed in water at that time. This meant that the baptismal font also had to be large enough. Another obstacle was that adult baptized persons were immersed completely naked in the water basin, just as Jesus was once nailed to the cross naked. To strip stark naked in a church would have been obscene then as now. For this reason the baptistry was in the immediate vicinity of the actual church building where the masses were held. The foundation walls of at least parts of both buildings, the bishop's church and the baptistry, are archaeologically documented for this period, at the latest from the 6th century. The baptismal font in the building itself was elaborately worked out of recent years' museum didactic and has a really stunning presentation room underneath Cologne Cathedral. I would post pictures of it in my companion post, but who knows if tours will be available there again by the time this episode is published because of this ongoing pandemic. I would like to talk about the bishop's church and baptistry in detail elsewhere when we will talk about the institution of the church and the new Frankish ruling class in general in the next episode. Here it should serve only for the time being as a proof that with the construction and the continuous existence of the bishop's church, another proof of the uninterrupted large settlement of this city is given. The building area from the late 5th century even represents clear sign of the continuity as a center of the Roman church with its episcopal seat and the early Christianity in the region. This is also illustrated by the continuous existence of the church buildings of St. Gerion and St. Ursula, which already had the origins in the still Roman era of the city. So, in conclusion, what does this episode show us about Cologne in early Frankish times? First and foremost, despite the ultimately epochal fall of the Roman Empire in the West around the year 475, despite all the dangers and threats of the time, the city of Cologne continued to exist seamlessly as an urban center. Like everywhere else in Europe, Cologne's population declines, but not as dramatically or almost completely as in other cities. This is a decisive starting advantage which paves Cologne's further greatness in the Middle Ages. How did it come about? Well, from the reliable mercenaries in the region in the service of Rome, the Germanic Franks had become the new masters on the Rhine after the fall of Rome. Compared to other regions in Europe, this resulted in an extremely bloodless transfer of power. And why not? 
Franks and the provincial Gallo-Romans had known each other for several generations and had worked together successfully here in Cologne. Here, the Franks did not have to impose their rule by force. Many Frankish nobles and their families had already held power during the Roman era as federates of the empire. And one of them was King Sigebert of Cologne, whom we have already mentioned. Who was he actually? How did the Frankish kings rule over the kingdoms on the Rhine and in Gaul? And why did the Frankish petty kingdoms suddenly come to an abrupt end after the year 500? Well, that a great united and above all expanding Frankish empire arose had a reason. And this reason listened to the name of Klotwig or Clovis. This Klotwig would soon proclaim himself king of all Franks. And guess where he did this? In Cologne, of course. The pagan Klotwig would then do something else that would permanently shape Europe's history. He broke with the old pagan faith of his forefathers. But here I don't want to spoil too much for the next episode. Likewise, we must take a look at the institutions of the Frankish city of Cologne. It will be seen that the Roman Church, unlike its former protecting power, the Roman Empire, is alive and well in Cologne as well as in Europe. Because of this, it will become more and more attractive to the new pagan Frankish rulers. But enough spoilers. More on this in the next episode of this podcast. As always, thank you so much for your attention. As homework, I'm giving you the task of recommending my podcast to a friend of yours who is interested in history. Also, feel free to check out my social media accounts for background info. As always, everything is linked in the show notes. And a big thank you to my Patreons, Brian who raised his contribution to the level of a patrician as well as his fellow patrician brother Beaker, who also belongs to this illustrious group. I would also like to welcome Ed as a Patreon. Thank you very much for your support. Stay true to me and as always, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>